Welcome to Diary of a Crowdfunded Film, proudly in collaboration with Brick Studios. I'm Jose Pusella. Join me as I take you on this audio journey with Heath Davis on the making of his new crowdfunded film, Christmas. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Diary of a Creative from Oz to NZ, celebrating individuals and their love of the arts and the careers they're carving out of this love and anything in between. On my last outing, I had the honor of chatting with Western Australian writer-director Zach Hilditch, who amongst his filmic feats has the distinction of being among a handful of directors who have contributed to the growing canon of cinematic Ignacence adaptations with his retelling of Stephen King's 1922, currently streaming on Netflix. But today, as I record on the morning before the eve of Halloween, Australian Eastern Standard Time, for this episode 666, I go beyond Oz and NZ for a virtual sit-down with the residents of the City of Angels. They are a master of the macabre and a titan of terror. All elements that perfectly fit into this episode's Halloween motif, like a labyrinthian puzzle box configured to open a portal to hell. Of the many miles they've walked as a journeyman screenwriter in Hollywood, they've worked on a rewrite of the feature, The Grudge 2 for Sony Pictures, as an executive story editor for multiple seasons on the CBS series Ghost Whisperer. Feature assignment remakes the likes of Fantastic Voyage for 20th Century Fox and Hellraiser for Dimension Films. And when he's not gouging the ripened pulpy flesh of innocent pumpkins for Halloween with his creative counterpart and life partner, Min Sun Park, who was a co-writer of the horror spec Red Door, which was acquired by Sony Pictures in 2017, you'll find these devilishly dynamic duo basking in the warm glowing, warming glow of over 70 honors amassed throughout the festival run of their award-winning short film Koreatown Ghost Story, starring Margaret Cho, which in September of this year was picked up by Paramount to be developed into a feature. So with that, I summon unto thee and graciously welcome Mr. Teddy Tenenbaum. Thank you so much for sitting down and chatting today. Thank you. Can I like record that and send that as my CV uh, to whoever I'm meeting with in the future? You're more than welcome to. That was the best intro I've ever had. Oh, man. Thank you so much. Look, before we kick proceedings off, I'll get some housekeeping out of the way. If you enjoyed our last episode as much as Zach Hilditch enjoyed winding down with a couple of buck beers while in post for 1922, wind down your windows, throw up your hands, and type into your electronic devices at Diary of a Creative One to catch us on Twitter or Diary of a Crowdfunded Film for Facebook. Please don't forget to subscribe and reset the episodes to keep the drive alive for this podcast and Heat's Film Christmas as a recess to roll in 2022. All right, Teddy, let's kick into this. I wanted to start where all journeys begin. What was your most memorable summer job? <laughs> um, so when I was... Uh... 18, I graduated high school. Um, I had moved to Los Angeles a couple of years earlier from the uh, very mundane city of Columbus, Ohio. I saw an ad for tour guides at the Glamorous Universal Studios tour. And so uh, I auditioned. There were, um, you had to audition with, uh, I think I think they had four or five auditions that summer, uh, which meant four or five different training groups uh, that went through. And ours, I went with two friends of mine from high school. The 30 of us took a week-long training course, at the end of which we had to replicate 20 minutes of the tram tour. Uh, and then if we did that well enough, we got the job. Uh, and if you've been on, or anyone listening has been on the Universal Studios tour or been to the parks, um, it's very different now than it was uh, you know, 20 years ago when I did it. Now it's very much a theme park and there's a lot of rides. But before, there really was only one thing, and that was the studio tour. 
it was uh, anywhere from an hour and a half to two and a half hours long, uh, and it would just drive through the back lot. And then there was one stop in the middle for a special effects demonstration, which was also part of the tour, and it was on a sound stage. And uh, you know, the Universal Studios has this amazing back lot with probably the most storied history of any back lot in Hollywood. We had something like a a 400 page guidebook that we all had to uh, memorize, and uh, from there we could pull whatever we could we could come up with. And I did that for three summers. So, you know, because uh, I managed to locate a small article from the uh, LA Times dated August 10th, 1986. Where, oh, it you said, found that. where it said, Teddy Tenenbaum can barely keep his enthusiasm in check when he talks about his summer job yeah. as a tour guide at Universal Studios. And I quote. Yeah, that may have been stretching a little bit. <laughs> sure. but <laughs> It's better than I thought it would be. It's just acting. And today we saw the filming of Murder, She Wrote, and I saw Burt Reynolds' car. This is definitely glamorous. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I put that sentence together I'm in that sure way. You didn't. <laughs> uh, I may have had 30 minutes and uh, picked from various uh, things that happened. I mean, th- there were some, I mean, mostly uh, it, we didn't see a lot of, sh- we were promised as, and most of us were aspiring filmmakers of course. Uh, and a lot of actors. And we were kind of promised by the management that working at Universal was an incredibly glamorous job. We would be able to go on to the back lot, sound stages, see whatever we wanted filming. And for the most part, that didn't turn out to be the case um, because they didn't want you around, you know, and none of us had experience on film sets. So they were worried that we would make too much noise or do something stupid. Um, but occasionally we would, uh, especially if they were shooting exteriors. And there's one part of the back lot of Universal. It's very famous. Um, it's called Mockingbird Lane because it was the site for the Munsters. Munsters are Adam's family. I'm pretty sure I should know this, but it actually may have been at the Adams family, but either way. So, but this street was used for hundreds of television shows and movies, including famously, at least for American audiences, Leave it to Beaver. Um, and, uh, and then it became the, the set for um, Desperate Housewives uh, in the 90s which they use the entire street. But it was also, when I was there, it was being used to shoot a Tom Hanks movie called The Burbs, uh, as in the suburbs. And um, he was a, you know, an upcoming star at the time. He was already, he had already done big. So he was yes. a star, but he wasn't who he is today um, in terms of his stature as an actor. And we went one night, they were shooting. We snuck down there because we, we didn't get permission. And um, we sat on the one of the lawns on a house, you know, two doors down from where they were shooting. And Tom Hanks walks by, probably on his way to his trailer. You know, I was like 18 at the time or so. And uh, he he said, what are you guys doing here? <laughs> and uh, we said, well, we're, we're just kind of checking out. We're, well, how'd you get on? And he's, we said, we're tour guides. And he, at that point, went into a probably 10 minute off the top of his head riff uh, at pretending to be a tour guide because he could hear them go by every day and they drive everyone crazy because they keep hearing the same thing over and over again. And he basically did a comedy routine for us pretending to be a tour guide. Uh, and it was like one of the most amazing things I, I had ever seen. It was all completely uh, improv. Uh, so um, that was a good experience early on in my career because it taught me falsely that everyone in Hollywood is really nice. And really only Tom Hanks is really nice. No one else is really nice in Hollywood. So <laughs> I can blame him for all of my uh, trials and tribulations as I thought it was going to be a much better place. Uh, Luke, thank you for indulging with that question. And I was kind of hesitant to ask that. I thought I'll lead with a memorable supper job and hopefully you'll go to exactly where I wanted it to go. So <laughs> I'm glad it worked out. Yeah. Um, well, it was the best summer job I had. So that was an easy one. 
But uh, look, you you did graduate with a degree in anthropology um, from the University of California, Berkeley and Los Angeles. So how do you feel that that informed your writing within the horror genre? I always thought that it, it helped my writing in general, primarily because of one study, one facet of my studies. Uh, I was really fascinated with, and so I focused on behavior, evolutionary psychology, um, evolutionary behavior, uh, which is basically the study of how humans behave, modern humans behave, and how that was shaped by natural selection, um, how everything we do is essentially uh, now a, it was once a version of a survival um, technique, whether or not we realize it. And um, so when you look at human behavior, um, it's a kind of an interesting new way to look at why we do the things we do. And it's also somewhat empathetic as well, because instead of looking at good and evil, you're looking at just humanity, you know, why we do what we do and what it's informed by. But it actually, I think it's even more helpful in horror um, for different ways, because part of anthropology was also cultural anthropology. Uh, and um, even though I didn't focus on that, I took a ton of cultural anthropology classes. And um, we, we don't know for sure, but we believe that the first stories told around campfire, hmm. um, you know, before there was a written language, uh, were probably horror stories. Um, you know, the earliest oral tradition stories that have been passed down from, let's say, for instance, Africa, which is obviously where the, the heart of human civilization. Um, yeah, they're mostly tales of tricksters. They're tales of gods playing tricks on humans. They're tales of the animal gods who, you know, were anthropomorphized and how they twisted the lives of humans and interacted. And usually to not a great end for, uh, for the humans. And nightmares um, probably serve a similar purpose. Those two purposes of the stories and nightmares being that um, we have enough daily horrors in our life and we don't always know how to react to those horrors. But if you live those horrors through stories, uh, then it teaches you, it gets those emotions, those real emotions of fear in particular, um, it brought to the surface and it kind of teaches us how to deal with those emotions so that when you're in a situation in real life, a fight or flight uh, situation, you might be more likely to choose correctly. Um, but there's another aspect to it as well, which is a little bit of a digression. Um, there's a quote, I think it's Wes Craven, uh, who said, um, horror doesn't create fear, horror releases fear. And uh, there are many psychologists who believe, uh, and this was, this was part of anthropology for me, that um, horror and scary stories and stories of gods and supernatural stories, that's the original supernatural, are intended to help us deal with the real fears that you have in your life by experiencing them in a safe place, by getting it out of your system, so to speak, but also potentially uh, as a bonding experience. Certainly those oral stories told around the campfire work that way. Even now you can say the horror movies work that way in some degree that the audiences are experiencing this thing together and bond through it. Now, obviously you're not going to bond with strangers that you don't uh, in the theater, but you might with the people who you've come to the the theater with. It's interesting that the only two kinds of genres right now that seem to be doing well post-pandemic in theaters are big budget action spectacles and horror movies, mm -hmm. because I think people mostly want to experience horror movies in a group setting. Uh, that's a long way from anthropology, but um, all of this is 
on our minds when we're writing horror is how is it going to affect the audience? How is it going to bring about those feelings of fear? What's the scariest thing? And um, kind of understanding human behavior helps understand what's going to scare people. It sounds like your ideology, because I was reading in a journal by the University of Chicago Press that um, you're guiding screenwriting theory, which just reiterates everything you've said. So the quote was, human beings need horror entertainment to exercise their greatest fears. Mm -hmm. Couldn't agree more. And it sounds like that ideology was founded during your studies. Has there been a time throughout your life where you've exercised a great fear through either writing horror or the entertainment of horror? In a way. So uh, as a kid, I was really afraid of everything. Um, I mean, afraid of things you couldn't see. I was afraid of the unknown. I was afraid of the dark. I would not see horror. I didn't like horror. Uh, you know, a commercial would come on television for a horror movie and I'd turn off the sound. I'd get up, I'd jump off of my couch, turn the sound I off, you know, I'd not look at the TV. Uh, so I was really a chicken. And I remember the moment, strangely, in 19... 19- 82 or 84. I'm trying to remember. I think it was 83 or four. Um, when Gremlins came out, you know, I was, I was a kid and I went to see it assuming, Oh, it's a Steven Spielberg movie. It's just yes. going to be, you know, a more ET. Uh, <laughs> he also had done, I think it was the same summer he did Poltergeist, which was obviously also not just ET. And I didn't see Poltergeist at the time because I was too scared, but Gremlins, I walked in unawares. And um, it's not really a scary movie, but there's a scene about halfway through the movie where um, the lead character is battling the newly uh, sprung gremlins. And mm. there's all kinds of gore. Uh, and, yes. you know, John De- Joe Dante is a brilliant uh, you know, director of that kind of B-movie style, that mm-hmm. 50s horror style, but he elevates it, you know, and makes it crazy and cartoonish. And so there's all this gore going on throughout the scene. And I was like not looking at the screen and, and people were laughing and I looked up and I started enjoying it. And uh, suddenly from that moment on, I became a huge fan of horror because I realized there's a ton of humor and release in it. It feels good to watch it, even if you're scared and only watching, you know, part of the screen, it feels good. And um, I kind of never went back. I mean, I became a student uh, and lover of the genre uh, from that point on. In the intro, we mentioned uh, that you worked on a rewrite of The Grudge 2. Um, did you have mm-hmm. to pitch for that or were you approached by Sony? And how much of what you contributed remained in the 2006 theatrical release? Yeah, that was a strange situation. Um, you know, you never just get a job unless you're like an A-list writer. And even then, mm-hmm. nowadays, you still have to come in and give your take on what you would do. But that was an easier job to get than some I've had. And I'm not sure exactly why other than um, they were rushing. They, uh, so Grudge came out. It did incredibly well. And mm-hmm. Sony set a date for the Grudge too. And this is pretty common um, that a date for the release of a movie that's highly anticipated is set before there's a script, you know, before there's anything. Always um, problematic. So they, yeah, it is. And it can be. So they set it into motion and Stephen Susco, who had written the grudge, the original had written a couple of drafts of it. And um, there was a disconnect and I'm, I wasn't part of that. So I don't know exactly what it was, but there was some disconnect in terms of visions between what he was writing and what, um, uh, what the film, the Japanese filmmakers were intending, particularly what uh, the director was was looking at, was you know wanted to do with this movie. Even though the first Grudge really stuck closely to Juon, his original mm-hmm. film, 
So, um, but this was new territory. They weren't basing it off an existing Japanese film at that point. So um, they were rushing. And because of this disconnect, they brought, they, they needed another writer. And the, I think the job of this writer was kind of to work with the Japanese filmmakers and try to craft something that made them happy. But meanwhile, unbeknownst to me, um, they kept Steven Susco working on drafts because Sony was, I think, very happy with him. So, right. um, so he was still working on that. And I think that it became a little bit of a bake-off or a sweepstakes, mm-hmm. which now you have to, you by contract, uh, you have to inform all the writers who are involved if that's happening. But back then you didn't have to. Wow. Uh, and so we were writing at the same time and I got the job. I met with, um, um, with Roy Lee, who was the, uh, one of the American producers of the movie and we hit it off. And so they hired me and then I started working with the Japanese filmmakers and we hit it off. Um, and I flew to Japan for about a week, uh, and kind of studied the culture of, of Japanese horror and Asian horror, which is very different from American horror, Mm. um, and was a real trend at the time, uh, and then broke that draft. Um, but I had, you know, much shorter than the usual amount of time because they were going into production, whether they had a finished script or not. Um, in the end, what happened was they, and we did it kind of room style where, um, I was like the head of a writer's room. There weren't any other writers. There were other executives, other producers, and we all worked on breaking the story together. And then I went off and wrote it, but I was writing pages every night for what we had worked out during the day. And eventually the draft that I did very quickly was somehow somewhat merged with, with uh, the draft Steven Susco was working on. But that said, my, not enough of mine was used that I even asked for any kind of credits. Um, if there's the studio in the terms of currently in the way that the credits are determined, the studio will first present what they believe are the correct credits based on the formula that's part of the writer's guild. Um, so the original writer, if you're if you come in to a draft that another writer has already was the first writer on, you mm-hmm. have to write more than 33% or more than 66%. Sorry. So yeah. To get a 33% um, credit in effect. <laughs> to get any credit at all, you, oh, you have right. to, if you're the original writer, someone has to write at least 60% of the script or 65% or something wow. to, to share credit with you. And if they write more than that, then they can get sole credit. It's not even a 50, 50 thing, but if you're, if it's an adaptation of something, an existing property, then it's more like a 50, 50 thing. Mm-hmm. And it determines who goes first uh, in the credits and things like that. Um, so the studio, you know, we looked at it and I had probably 10% or something. So the studio just, submitted Steven's name alone. And I didn't fight it because I didn't, I didn't think I could win. And I didn't think it was fair. He had clearly like 90% of the script. Uh, so a couple of the horror scenes are mine, some of the dialogue here and there, but it was a, we were writing very different stories. So mm-hmm. they went with the story that he wrote and the movie uh, came out and I'm, I'm okay that my name's not on it because uh, it didn't do very well. Uh, and so, and which was disappointing because I really grew to love the filmmakers and I really just wanted them to have a huge, another huge hit. And that he has not done a lot of American films since then. Um, and I think he's a great filmmaker. So I hope that, you know, I mean, there's no reason to do American films when you can do great Japanese films, but yes. except I think audiences can be bigger. So if he wants it, I, I hope he gets another shot at it. 
kind of leading into the fairness of things. And then based on your response, we'll see if this question works out. But an article in the Writer Guild of America West, February 2nd, 2021. So it referenced 100-day writer strike of 0708 declared, and I quote, writers gained coverage of new media and a foothold in today's massive streaming market. I just wanted to know, in your opinion, if you feel that's an accurate reflection of the truth at the moment. Uh, well, I mean, there there were um, gains made in that contract for sure. The studios had been kind of holding on to this language, contractual language that they negotiated way back for cable television and VHS, um, and also for new networks like CW and Fox at the time. And the language that they used for each of these and the formulations that they used were basically we're just testing out this new thing. We don't know how it's going to work. You know, is anyone going to watch Fox? Is anyone going to buy videotapes? And um, they kept that that reasoning going for DVDs and wow. streaming and uh, cable television exploding and everything. So the um, conglomerates continue to make more and more and more money. And writers weren't getting any bigger share of that. Um, directors were getting a tiny bit and actors weren't getting much of anything. Um, and that partially has to do with the power that the unions have and the power that the individuals have. Um, Hollywood has always, the Directors Guild has always been a very strong union and Hollywood has always valued directors more than writers. And the Writers Guild is also a very strong union, but Hollywood doesn't value writers the same way they value directors. And having directed now, uh, I realize what a crock that is um, because uh, I will say, and I'm probably getting trouble uh, for this, but I've talked to a number of directors since I've directed myself now. And I find that writing is so much harder than directing. Um, I mean, when you're, it's like the difference between designing a house and coming in and building the house based on blueprints. When you're directing, you have blueprints and they're fantastic. And it's the difference between creating a story and telling a story. Um, so I, I don't understand, frankly, why there's this kind of awe about directors and not writers. If anything, I would feel that it should be somewhat reversed. Um, I, and I, it might, might have something to do with the French and the auteur theory, which I think is mostly BS for most filmmakers. There are certainly some filmmakers who are auteurs and deserve that mm -hmm. um, notation. But um, I don't think that's mostly the case. I mean, a script is a, yeah, I think you have to write the script too to be an auteur, you know, because um, it's literally the author. It's that's French right. for author. Mm -hmm. And if you're not writing it, you're not the author of this of the movie. So not the sole author, at least. So anyway, um, I do think that there have been gains, but we have a long way to go, particularly because of streaming um, and residuals uh, that, you know, a lot of writers used to make their living off of residuals from television shows. And those are mostly going away because there are no residuals in streaming. Uh, it's just in network television and most network television, it came, those residuals are def, def, the def, definition is when something reruns again, after the initial time, you get paid a portion of what you got paid for the first time it ran, but things aren't really rerunning on network television anymore. Usually what's happening is NBC is putting its entire library on Peacock, a streaming service, their streaming service or something. And that's not included. That's not broadcast television, quote unquote. So that's not included in residuals. Um, so writers, there's an explosion of content and need for content, but the standard living 
uh, of writers has gone down a lot um, in the last 10 or 20 years. There's more work, but it's shorter, it pays less, and it's harder to make a living as a writer than it once was. Now, that's a little bit like, you know, a, a duke complaining because he's not the king. You know, it's still a good living if you mm -hmm. can eke it out. But about five, only about 5% of the writers go works regularly. Um, wow. And of that 5%, very, very few of those actually work every single year. So because of that, you may make a lot of money on one job and then you don't have a job for two or three years. So, um, you know, that money is necessary to kind of sustain your, mm -hmm. your, your cost of living over a few years. I think, you know, that's part of the, um, that journeyman, that screen professional screenwriter journeyman, um, because it just highlights how sometimes on our end, being the audience or somebody who wants to get into the industry, can perceive, you know, the glamour, quote unquote, it is interesting to have that perspective. Look, and I wanted to go to an initial contact of ours. So I'm going to go back to obviously something that people aren't aware, but you'd mentioned that you were, that you had formed the friendship um, with the famed couple of Ed Warren, who was a paranormal investigator, and Lorraine Warren, um, a writer, or better known to the world as the Conjuring couple, played by yeah. Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson. Um, just briefly, how did the friendship come about? So um, about 15 years ago, I think, Min Sun, my wife and now writing and directing partner, although back then we mostly wrote separately, um, was in a new age bookstore and found it and had used books. And she found a book called The Demonologist. Uh, and The Demonologist was kind of a life story, including a number of cases uh, of Ed and Lorraine Warren, The Demonologists. Mm -hmm. And um, we were she was shocked that she had never seen this turned into a movie that she'd never heard of them before because she she's a voracious reader. She knows all this. She loves the supernatural. Uh, she grew up in a haunted house. So uh, that's oh, one wow. of the reasons. And so she um, she brought this to my attention right, right away. She said she read it. She brought it home and she said, you have to read this. This would make such a great movie. It would make a great series of movies. So, uh, you know, I agreed as soon as I read it, I fell in love with it. Um, I'd never seen, you know, usually these stories are told from the point of view of the family living in the haunted house. And this was, you know, obviously the story of the people who come in to help them. And they had very interesting and unique ways of doing that. And it wasn't just ghosts, it was demons. So, mm -hmm. um, it harkened back to like my favorite horror movies of the seventies, uh, you know, for instance, the exorcist. Yes. And, um, so we just needed knew the best way to get the material and get ourselves as the writers would be to pursue the rights ourselves, which is a good idea for um, most writers. Um, if they find a great piece of literature or a great true story and no one else owns the rights to it yet, don't go telling people about it. Don't go telling producers about it in studios, get the rights and then go tell them about it because now you have something of value that you control and you can often get the rights to people if they're not well-known people, or it's a, you know, a book that's published years ago and was never options. Rights were never optioned. You can usually get it for a very decent price. Uh, and it's called a uh, shopping agreement. Um, so right. you don't necessarily put in the agreement. It's like a one page agreement. You don't necessarily put in the agreement, how much a studio will buy it for. You just say, I'm going to pay you $100 or I'm going to pay you $500 for 12 months or 18 months mm -hmm. to shop this around. And if I sell it somewhere, you will individually uh, uh, negotiate your own deal. We'll individually negotiate our own deal. The danger is that it can all fall apart if someone's deal doesn't close. If someone, sure. you know, 
plays hardball. But so the, we um, contacted, I just literally called Ed and Lorraine Warren. Um, their wow. number is in the phone book, <laughs> or at least it used to be. And that's because they made their living and not much of a living, actually. I mean, they actually made they made more of the I don't think this is in the movies, but they made more of a living from selling paintings of haunted houses. And they were both artists when they started. Um, but eventually they started making a living from publishing books and stories about. It, but but for most of their career, they didn't charge anything except for expenses to the people who they were helping. So um, their number was listed because. They knew people would want to call them if they heard about them and, and ask for help. So I called them and I, I told them, you know, what I was doing and what I was interested in doing. They had had a previous deal with Ridley Scott that had fallen through. Um, right. He was the only person who had um, optioned their rights before them. They got to meet him. Um, he was very excited about the project, but it didn't work out. I don't think a script was ever written. So we ended up optioning their rights and um, getting a producer involved um, who was at the time, it was Jerry Brockheimer. And um, and Disney was interested. We didn't we ended up. And so they flew us out to uh, one of their seminars or speeches, uh, speaking mm-hmm. engagements that they give. And that's where I met them in person. Um, we ended up selling it to Silver Pictures and Warner Brothers in the end. OK, um, but at that point, Minson and I flew to Connecticut and stayed with the Warrens for a week. Uh, and we um, you know, the basements where they keep all of yes. their um, mm-hmm. relics. And yeah, so yes, we yes. went down there a number of times. Ed left me alone there one oh. night for about 20 minutes, which was not pleasant. Uh, <laughs> I would have fainted if uh, I was there. I just would have. Yeah, it wasn't. It was. And then I started hearing voices and whispering when I was down there. And he came back down and I told him what happened. So he blessed it. And, you know, I, he's a he's a showman. For sure, he was a showman. So it's possible that part of it was, you know, he knew what he was kind of, you know, <laughs> doing to me when I was down there. Um but we got to be very close because over time, not only did I, I wrote that script, eventually both the studio and the production executives, the studio executive and production executive left the project, left the studio and the and the, and the um, their jobs and went to other places. So the script died. We then sold it again as a television show to NBC and Clive yes. Barker worked with us um, wow. to produce it. That was another incredible experience because I got to meet and work with Clive Barker, who's a genius and a wonderful human being. And then that didn't work out because the they fired the president of NBC uh, and brought in someone new. And then we had the opportunity to potentially sell it again. And that's when we turned out to be in a race with New Line and The Conjuring. And they won the rights. And so they shot the movie instead of us. So, But I, I until Ed and Lorraine both passed away, um, I stayed friends with them and talked to them, you know, a couple times a year. Such a fascinating couple to have had discussions with. And, you know, thank you for sharing that story. I, I was always curious because, you know, you mentioned you had the two pitches, television series and um, the film. What would your story um, have explored? Now, I don't know if you can go too much into it. And, you know, how close would either of those projects tonally been to the universal release? Yeah, so I can't. I can't answer accurately that last question because I have not been able to bring myself to see the contrary movies because Fair it enough. was a little bit painful uh, when we lost the rights. So, and I, you know, it was, they, these were good jobs that I had and I got paid for. So it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm grateful for that, but I'm, you know, I just think it might be kind of a painful experience. Both Minson and I feel this way to watch someone else's version of their lives, especially since we know them so well. Yes. Um, yes. 
I think though, from what I know, ours was more humorous. We do tend to put a lot of humor in horror because we think they, we love the interplay between horror and humor. Mm -hmm. um, and Ed and Lorraine were, are very funny, especially, I mean, Ed was funny intentionally, um, told a lot of jokes and was very corny and, um, you know, he's kind of like the ultimate dad, dad jokes all the time. And Love Lorraine it. was funny in that she was such a character. She was so prim and proper and old fashioned and, you know, screaming at demons to you know be gone. And <laughs> um, and so it was just this contrast that was amazing to see. Um, so there was a lot of humor in ours, but also I think this is different in that we saw our story as the story of a marriage and mm -hmm. how it's tested by forces outside of the marriage um so the in our original movie their marriage is nearly destroyed by not only the supernatural but the supernatural ends up being a metaphor for you know the real world influences that can harm a marriage and the internal influences that can harm a marriage um and ed and lorraine were very different um in terms of why they did what they did they both came from very religious backgrounds and they would both say that we were doing this for our religion, even though they said, you know, these things exist in every religion and you fight not with Roman Catholicism, but you fight with faith, whatever your faith is, mm -hmm. you're fighting with faith. But the truth is that Ed had had really bad experiences with religion growing up um, and really bad experiences with priests and nuns and, and the, the, um, the general structure of the Catholic church where they lived. And Lorraine was more, much more devout and unquestioning. So it became a story of how their faith is tested as well and how their marriage is tested by their differences and how they see God and what they believe in. Um, so, and I don't know if the movies get into that, but we, we had always intended that to be a, the heart of our story. They definitely don't, you know, maybe one day, I don't know how it works. Um, that sounds like an amazing story. Really. It's my jam. I wanted <laughs> yeah. to, we will look, we will leave the topic. I, I'll respect it. And I appreciate what you shared. Due to file size upload restrictions on ACAST being limited to 150 MB, and with this episode clocking in at 173 MB, I've had to split this like a Kit Kat, so take a break listeners, top up your drinks, refill your snack bowls, then jump back onto your designated podcatcher and download part 2 of this fantastic interview with Teddy Tenenbaum.